Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Last episode, we looked at the third mission of St. Paul. We particularly focused on his time in Ephesus, and then his bittersweet return to Jerusalem, where he was attacked, arrested, and framed. Today, we'll conclude our series on Paul by discussing his journey to Rome, the events that happened while he was there that would eventually result in the end of his life. Where we left off, the Jews had accused Paul of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile past its barrier. In spite of their best efforts, they weren't allowed to kill Paul, who was a Roman citizen. Roman soldiers actually defended Paul against the angry Jews. Thinking quickly, the Sanhedrin tried to use their relationship with the governing Romans to convince them to kill Paul, or let them jail and kill Paul themselves. They tried to convince the Romans that Paul was teaching a new religion that was rebellious and subversive to Roman beliefs. Paul successfully defended himself to the Romans against these charges twice. But the Sanhedrin were still scheming up new ways to get Paul offed, and Paul was now trapped in Caesarea on house arrest. Amidst this opposition, Paul saw an opportunity. By appealing to Caesar, Paul would be able to get his case heard and judged by the Roman emperor, Nero. This would get Paul far away from the reach of the Sanhedrin, and it would also fulfill the promise the Lord gave to him that he'd be his witness in Rome. Governor Festus had no choice but to permit Paul to be judged of Nero. Some soldiers who were being reassigned to Rome, including a centurion named Julius, were ordered to serve as Paul's guards, both to make sure that Paul didn't escape, but also to protect Paul from being assassinated. In addition to the guards, Paul was able to bring some of his traveling buddies along for his voyage to Rome. He brought Luke and Aristarchus, who would be with him all the way to the end. Several other dozen prisoners uh, were also being sent up to Rome, so they boarded alongside them. At first, the the voyage went very smoothly. They sailed up the coast, stopped at some towns, and the guards even let Paul visit some friends. It was turning out to be just like another mission. But then winter came, and the winds became very hostile to their vessel. Having to take frequent stops, Julius the centurion grew impatient. During one stop, he met the captain of a grain vessel coming from Alexandria and headed to Rome. The captain told Julius that they would not be docking for the winter, that they'd be heading to Rome without delay to be the final grain shipment of the year. If the centurion rode with him, he could save himself months of time and money and get back to his post in Rome faster. Julius immediately ordered the guards and the prisoners to switch ships. But Paul warned the eager centurion, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. Paul's warning, regrettably, was not heeded. They boarded the ship along with 200 other passengers. They were traveling westward under the southern coast of Crete when storm clouds began brewing and rain began to pour. Soon, typhoon force winds began blasting the ship. The dinghy almost blew off and had to be secured. But then the ship itself started creaking as if it were going to split in twain. The crew began wrapping the ship in heavy ropes to keep it from bursting at the seams. They formed a cocoon of twain around the boat. They also dropped anchor, but still the storm pushed them. 
Their anchor dragged through the water uselessly like a very tiny parachute. They needed to lighten the load, and so they started throwing some of the cargo overboard. The men were getting desperate, and the storm had only begun. Luke describes the state of the crew and passengers as storm-tossed. A Coast Guard veteran named Stephen P. Wickstrom, who lived through many storms at sea and performed several rescues on many shipwrecks, describes what that would have been like for these passengers. Quote, Because the ship had a sea anchor dragging behind it, the waves would be moving faster than the ship. The stern of the ship would rise up steeply as a wave mounted underneath them, and then the bow would pitch upward, and the stern would start to drop down as the wave moved forward. In addition, as the ship was rising up and then falling, the wind would be rocking it from side to side all simultaneously. Can you say seasick? Can you imagine trying to sleep in those conditions? Can you imagine trying to eat in those conditions? Can you imagine having any hope in those conditions? Close quote. This brutal storm raged for 14 days. Winstrom continues, quote, The darkness of the storm hid the sun during the day. It hid the moon and the stars at night. It covered the men's hearts with a dark, thick blanket of hopelessness. Close quote. With little food, the morale of the ship dipped precipitously. Paul encouraged the crew and prisoners, quote, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God who I belong to and serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Close quote. The bold statement of faith assuaged some of the passengers' fears. And sure enough, Paul's prophecy was soon fulfilled. Through the storm, one of the crew members spotted an island in the distance. Now, the sailor who spotted it did not tell the soldiers and the prisoners. Instead, he went to his captain, who, along with the other sailors, decided to make a pact to save themselves and leave the hundreds of passengers to die. The sailors told Centurion Julius that they were going to go into the dinghy to lower some of the spare anchors. The real plan, of course, was to abandon the ship, leaving everyone else left on it without a dinghy. Paul overheard the conversation and immediately saw through the plot. He ordered the soldiers to drop the dinghy into the sea. No one would escape. They would all succeed or fail together. The sailors had no choice but to navigate the ship in a way to save everyone's lives. They began sailing towards the island, but the, re the remaining grain in the cargo hold would make the ship too heavy to run aground safely-ish. But before dumping the grain, Paul made and broke bread and blessed it and he ordered everyone to eat. Crew and passengers would need their strength for the upcoming ordeal. The sailors then dumped the grain and maneuvered the ship closer to land. The ship was torn up by the rocks and the reefs, as the sailors had expected, but they were able to buy enough time for each crew member and passenger to evacuate the ship safely. By staying, the sailors had brought the ship close enough to land that even the weakest of swimmers were able to paddle themselves to shore. 
every person on the ship made it to the beach where they gathered and discussed what needed to happen next. The soldiers suggested they kill the prisoners lest they escape, but Julius denied this request. He couldn't bring himself to kill Paul, who, by now, everyone looked to as the real leader, rescuer, and as God's servant. And Julius couldn't just spare one prisoner, so all the prisoners were spared. The island they arrived at turned out to be Melita, now known as Malta, the island of honey. It is smack dab in the center of the Mediterranean, right between Libya and Italy. Paul did his thing, and after a few months, the Malta Islanders and Roman governor were eating out of Paul's hands. Paul healed their sick, and he survived a snake bite that would have killed another man. As a result, many people in Malta had the chance to hear the gospel for the first time. The grateful islanders furnished the castaways with much-needed supplies, and after three months, finally, another Alexandrian grain ship announced that they were ready to take them all to Rome. The remainder of the journey to Rome was not nearly as eventful, but Paul was encouraged by the support of local Christians who had heard of his coming and allowed him to stay with them for a week before being taken to Rome. In Rome, Paul was allowed to rent an apartment to live in while a soldier guarded him as he awaited trial. Despite having a lot of leeway to do almost whatever he wanted, he was still technically on house arrest, and he was actually chained to the guard who was watching him. For the first few months in Rome, Paul began meeting with the Jewish leaders and informing them of what had gone down in Judea and his disagreement with the Sanhedrin. Of course, he also took this time to teach them about Jesus Christ. For the two years that Paul lived there, he always had an open-door policy. He would meet with Jewish and Christian leaders and believers every day and he would proclaim to them all the gospel from morning until night. In these rented quarters, Paul wrote his epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Ephesians. He also wrote his epistle to Philemon, which we talked about in our Roman slavery episode. He also wrote another episode, now lost. It's called the Epistle to the Laodicians. In these epistles, it is clear that Paul is in high spirits. He feels like he's doing a lot of great work in Rome, and he still has hope that he'll eventually be released. He even makes plans to someday preach the gospel in far-flung Spain. About AD 63, after two years in house arrest, a sudden change occurs. Paul is seemingly acquitted and allowed to travel again. But what is this change that occurred? Well, the book of Acts ends right after saying that that happened. And so, to find out what happened, we have to read between the lines in the epistles Paul wrote after his house arrest, known as the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Paul writes in 2nd Timothy, quote, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Uh, close quote. Emperor Nero was oft called the lion, even by Seneca. So perhaps Paul was referring to Nero here, or indirectly he was referring to Nero since he alluded to the fact that the mad emperor could have easily sent him to die as a bestiari to be slain by lions in the arena. But that's kind of all the confirmation we get from the scriptures, but just remember that the angel of the Lord visited Paul on the ship and told him that he would be able to testify before Nero. So that's good enough confirmation for me. According to the tradition of early Christian writers like Eusebius, Jerome, and Chrysostom, 
Paul was actually seen by and then dismissed by Nero, and actually did get the chance to go preach in Spain before he returned east to Rome. Now, something strange happens once he returns east. It's between AD 65 and 67, he actually gets recaptured by Rome and thrown into a dark, cold dungeon. What's going on here? Usually the Romans, they, they're pretty courteous and cordial and lawful towards Paul. I mean, he's a Roman citizen. Why was Paul getting the cold shoulder all of a sudden? Paul was taken from the dungeon and had to face another trial. And this one went very poorly. What's worse, the many Christians in Rome didn't stand by and defend Paul during the trial. He told Timothy, quote, No man stood with me, but all men forsake me. In his correspondence with Timothy, he learned that even Timothy had been imprisoned. What was going on? The Roman Christians, they loved Paul. And the Romans normally ignored the rest of the Christians, but now it seemed like the whole world was persecuting the Christians. Somehow, the Christian and Roman relations had turned into a dumpster fire since Paul's meeting with the emperor. And I suspect it was Nero who lit the dumpster on fire. You see, the Romans were already confused by the Christians. Some thought they were just weird Jews. And the Jews were already a suspicious lot, according to the Romans. You'll recall in the Josephus episode of this podcast that uh, the, the Jews led a revolt and were currently at war with the Romans. The Jewish revolt started in AD 66. But even ignoring the war, generally Romans thought that the Jews were an overly rebellious people. And they also thought the Jews were lazy since the Jews took off one day a week for the Sabbath. Other Romans were even more confused by what they had heard of Christian practices. Eating the flesh of a man every week? Kissing your brothers and your sisters? Not worshipping the emperor? It didn't take long for these misunderstandings to turn into rumors that Christians were an incestuous, treacherous group of cannibals. Meanwhile, Nero, who had long resented the small size of his palace, wanted it to be rebuilt much larger and with a nice statue of himself. Unfortunately, the city of Rome in that neighborhood had already been completely developed, so there was no real room for a bigger palace. When those blocks in Rome conveniently burned in a fire, the rumor mill began circulating that Nero had been responsible. Nero could not tolerate these rumors, and so he threw under the bus a minority community who people were already suspicious of. A Roman writer, Tacitus, writes what happened next. Quote, Yet no human effort, no princely largesse, nor offerings to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians who were infamous for their abominations. The originator, the originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, and though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, 
First, those who were seized admitted to their faith, and then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. And perishing, they were additionally made into sport. They were killed by dogs, by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer mixing with the plebs or driving about the race course. Even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. And so, to save his own hide, Nero began an empire-wide persecution and slaughtering of the Christians. Christians from across the world were dragged into this. In the mid-60s, Peter, the chief apostle, was martyred in Rome. We learn from Josephus that James, the brother of Christ, was stoned to death in Jerusalem. One by one, each of the apostles fell, except for John the Beloved, Tradition has it that he lived and worked in Ephesus along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He lived there up until the 90s. John, in writing his revelation to the churches of Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis, Pergamum, and Theatira, he alludes to the period of horrific persecution under Nero. John writes of a beast, the spawn of Satan, who uttered haughty and blasphemous words, was given authority over every tribe and people and nation, was allowed to make war on all the saints and conquer them, and forced everyone on earth to worship it. John tells us the name of this beast using the ancient code of Gematria. Basically in Hebrew, since the letters of their alphabet are also their numbers, it means that every name adds up to a numerical sum. And so when John wrote in Greek that the number of the beast was 660 and 6, the Christians who knew Hebrew would be able to translate that number into the letters N-E-R-O-N-C-A-E-S-A-R, Neron Kaiser. Now, you know the persecution was bad when people are calling you the spawn of Satan even 20 years after you committed suicide. Maybe it was a good thing the Praetorian Guard abandoned Nero. Still, it would take centuries to rectify the damage that Nero caused. It wasn't until the Edict of Milan in AD 313 that the legal rights of Christians were fully restored. And so, what was the fate of our dear Paul of Tarsus? Well, he was beheaded in Rome in AD 69, the same year as Peter. One year later, the temple in Jerusalem would be defiled, demolished, and burned. And so would close one chapter of the history of Christianity. It's a somber note to end on, but I assure you there is a happy ending. Christianity would continue to grow in secret until eventually it would conquer and convert the entire Roman Empire. Now, to sum up the hardships of the life of Paul, I think the man himself does it best. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, quote, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death, five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I received a stoning, 
Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day. I was drift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Close quote. So why did he do it? Why did he suffer so much? Well, Paul summarizes this best as well. In what would be perhaps his last words ever written, Paul said, quote, No one came to my support. All deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review. For more information on this topic, check out truediscipleship.com, Acts chapters 27 to 28, and the Stephen P. Wickstrom blog. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you. Thank you.